0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: Kalia and Dylan until midday today, and next year the elite level women's football league will kick off in Australia with eight teams, including four from Victoria. In case you haven't heard, the teams are all associated with existing clubs and will be Adelaide, Brisbane, Carlton, Collingwood, Fremantle (GWS), and foundation clubs Melbourne and the Western Bulldogs. And our guest this morning is Katie Brennan. She is one of the leaders of the women's game and uh, plays for the Bulldogs, and she's the Sue Alberti medalist as well. And it's really great to have you. In here, Katie, and um, already the AFL or playing footy, AFL footy is um, one of the fastest growing sports for girls, and this is without. An elite level
2: competition i wonder what's going to happen now yeah thanks so, so much for having me guys um it's been a remarkable week for the afl and the announcement that has been made um not only for all those clubs that are involved but um also as you said for, for us girls who have played the game that we love for so long and we now get an opportunity to play at the elite level and have access to elite facilities and elite coaches and um and really try and take our game to the next level but i think the most exciting thing is as you said for all those young girls that can now aspire to be like us i guess and and see girls running around on the mcg and on eddie had in afl colors and i think that's such a powerful thing um not only for for women but for women in sport
0: and what was it like for you? you you're from Queensland originally. Um, have you sort of played footy since uh, a really young age?
2: Yeah, I came from Queensland and it's obviously a, a non-football traditional state. Um, you've got to compete with all different sports there, rugby league and netball and soccer. And uh, both parents were Victorian. So I guess football was always in the blood for me. I think I could kick a footy before I could walk and never played with dolls or anything like that. It was just, it was just footy. Um. And so my journey began. Um, I have an older brother who's about two years older and um, he started doing Oz kick. So obviously I went along and did everything that he did and just absolutely adored him. And And then he moved across to, to under eights and my dad was coaching the under eights league at, the, at that time. And I was only six years old. So I was always sitting on the sideline, just kicking my footy to myself and um, kind of just you know wishing that I could get out there. And I'd bring my boots every single week, just hoping that dad would let me play. And uh, one day they were short. And so I got to pull the boots on and um I'm pretty sure I kicked about seven goals in that game and dad was like all right you can stay out there you can hold your own so um yeah my journey continued on with the boys up until under 14s and then I was um I was one of the really fortunate ones where in Queensland they were um, starting a youth girls competition so that was um under I think it was under 17s at the time so I was uh, 14 and just moved across to that youth girls leagues and, and played a couple of years there and then moved into the women's league when I was um, 15 and, and have played women's football ever since and I had always dreamed of moving down to Victoria and, and playing with um, you know the girls like Daisy Pearce and Asta O'Connor and, and Melissa Hickey and all these names that will be household names in the future and um, you know it's aspired to be like them and um, and so I just was yeah 18 or 19 and just decided to, to move down and, and play for Darabin which I now call my home and um, they've been a fantastic club and, and such a great family so I'm really fortunate for this journey and I can't wait for what's ahead.
1: So you've got a couple of clubs going then so you're with the Darabin Falcons and you're also with the the Bulldogs and I wonder now what happens we've got the announcement and it was so interesting to see the interest in the announcements about who which teams were going to be part of this national competition and I know there was big disappointment that St Kilda and Geelong didn't make it and um, but it was limited to eight. Teams, and I wonder, like, are you sort of uh, understanding of why it was a smaller rather than a larger
2: competition? Just at this stage, um, the talent is. I guess, limited. So, you know, these girls haven't been placed in an elite environment. We've still played community football and, um, you know, there's not many girls that have gone through that whole pathway from under-8s all the way up to to women's football. So they haven't had that 10,000 hours of practice. And, um, you know, we've got girls coming from different sports and and all that sort of thing. So um, I think just to protect uh, the product of the game um, and also just to, I guess, give those clubs an opportunity who have worked... um, you know with the girls on a community level as well and those other clubs that did miss out on their submissions will be coming in in the future and will be really strong teams as well so um you know you mentioned that um melbourne and the western bulldogs have been um have set you know the standard and, and have really contributed to women's football and i'm so grateful to be a part of such a great club in western bulldogs and um, you know, we're we're talking about the future of the Western Bulldogs and and where I might play next year. And um, my heart is definitely within that club, and I'm so grateful that they have given that opportunity. And, and I, I
1: understand that there's like a, what they're calling a marquee system when it comes to the draft, and that players like you that are at the the, the you know the elite of the elite really in the in the women's comp at the moment. Will be able to pick the team you stay with. Is that sort of yeah? My understanding
2: work? is that it's a it's going to be kind of a a, married, a marriage between the the AFL, the player, and the club itself. So, um, you know, if I was wanting to to move to another team and the other team was wanting me as well, then um, and that enables girls to kind of move into state and to spread the talent a little bit as well. So Brisbane isn't going after you then? Um, <laughs> they are. We've had some chats. Uh, just, yeah, it's it's my, my hometown and um, um, it would be, yeah, may, possibly in the future, but I'm really, my heart is set on the Western Bulldogs. And um, as I said, they've been fantastic for women's football. And, and um, we mentioned Sue Alberti before and she is... I can't speak highly enough of that woman. She gives so much time and and so many resources to to women's football and she's um, just so fantastic behind the scenes along with many other people who you know have gone before our time and the Debbie Lees um the Pete Searles there's so many people just just driving this game forward and and it's not only in a playing capacity it's in coaching um it's in administration and it's just paving the way for for future generations
0: I wonder sort of where where you see the future because um our sort of landmark footy game for the year as you might have you might know is a community cup which is coming up next Sunday um when broadcasters play against musicians and um let's just say it's not an elite game by <laughs> the the imagination but that's a mixed game and uh, I've been part of that on the field for three years and it's just heaps of fun it reminds me about why I got into footy when I was young that you're kind of playing with a great group of people and the fact that it's mixed is really fantastic as well you're kind of playing with people who might not have played a lot of football before and I've just seen a few female players who have just loved the experience and have subsequently gone on to play for either the pub footy league or the VAFA yeah. and have got a lot out of it and I wonder what where you see the future when there's going to be role models at the national level people coming up playing the game do you see that as being sort of a really important part of this announcement last week
2: absolutely it's such a powerful game um you know you have young girls and girls as you said that just have a taste of the game and and go on to to continue playing and um i know especially at the darabin falcons that the community it, it is like your family you know you've got 22 other sisters running out there with you week to week and you've got people um who are so supportive and you can just rely on them to you know lift you up when you're down and that sort of thing and the most beautiful thing is that the game is so inclusive and now that you know Um, multicultural people can play um, people from different genders can play now and also um, different sexuality so it's it's you know encompassing everyone in the community and um, the afl and sport in general being such a important driver of um, you know in a social aspect um, it's just so powerful Uh, katie brennan's with us she's a bulldogs player and um, will be part of the uh,
1: women's football league competition which kicks off uh, next year early next year she's the sewer really great to celebrate women's footy with you this morning, Katie. And um, so you're not playing in this sort of weather the wet weather you're going to be playing in february march tell us about the sort of length of the competition and and um how long yeah the
2: the season length and when when you're actually playing yeah it's actually going to be really exciting to play over the summer um it's we played yesterday and it's it's a bit muddy uh, during the winter and a bit wet but the season will run um so our state league season will finish up around september um and then i think we got one month of of holidays um to to you know have some downtime and to start your training and um and then we'll go into a preseason with the club so um just kind of tracking back a little bit the marquee players will be chosen in july um and then there'll be a state-based draft in um, october and then the girls will go straight into pre-season um in november so november december january we'll do our pre-season and the the competition will start and run in conjunction with the the Nab Cup. So there's a bit of a um, a bit of a I guess a time slot where the Australian Open finishes and before the Nab Cup starts. So it's a really unique opportunity for us to to have football. You know. 12 months of the year and and to really um i guess take control of that that time um and it'll be an interstate game so you'll be home and away yeah home and away definitely so um there'll be eight apparently eight weeks of the competition so there's still a lot of details to be finalized but um, eight week competition and uh play the grand final um we think um before round one uh for the boys so there'll be a bit of hype going into round one and and that's where we'll we'll finish off our season
1: and and what about um the future with regards to to payment and things like this so that obviously a a short season like that isn't going to get enough cash for people to live off so you know you all have day jobs and the like can you see it at changing over time
2: like it did with the men's game that over time you're an elite athlete and that's your job yeah absolutely there's it's going to be an evolution just like the you know the vfl was before it came became the afl and um in regards to to payments the marquee players will be getting a a bigger sum because they'll have more um i guess responsibility in the club to be ambassadors and to to go out and do uh school visits with the kids media and and yeah exactly um and then Um, again, it's still to be finalised, but the payment will, will sort of be, um, you know, uh, it'll be a little bit different to what the the marquee players get, um, but as you said, it, it will evolve and the way that this game's growing from grassroots levels has, um, has just been absolutely amazing and I can really see this being a, you know, a full national competition with curtain raises to all the boys' games in, in the future um, and in the near future too.
0: And there's been some talk for, from some people about potential rule changes in, in the National Women's League. What's your perspective on that? Would you prefer that the rules are kind of kept exactly the same between the two leagues?
2: Yeah, there's been a lot of a lot of chat about it. The moment and I'm really relaxed about it all you know growing up loving football um, it's been my life and you know you can get really protective about those rules and and um, and how the game will be played next year but I know that it's in really safe hands with the AFL um, they've been doing all their data they got Um, You know, PhD student looking at hotspots of all the exhibition games and where the ball's been congested in certain areas and and obviously we want it to be really free-flowing games so if there's a few rule changes then we can certainly adapt to them and if it's a a better spectacle and it helps the future of women's football then I'm all for it.
1: And the other thing I've been thinking with um, women playing at the elite level, we're, we're already seeing women on boards of AFL clubs and in coaching roles that's starting to happen. I I imagine that is also going to escalate.
2: Yeah, 100%. And there a lot of these girls who are coming through at the moment, um, maybe, you know. 25 onwards who have played the game for a while and, and those girls are just going to transition really well into those cult coaching roles so they might be you know players of the club for uh, you know three or four years and, and be mentored in those roles and then be able to give back to the club by going into coaching roles and and um, you know player development roles and that sort of thing but as we said there's um, you know the Peter Searles the Michelle Cowans, the Debbie Lees they're just paving the way for, for women um, in the future and whether it's umpiring, coaching, um, administration Strength and conditioning, there's so many different opportunities, and that's why this, this Women's League is so great. That again, it's not just about the players, it's about how many opportunities around this great game that it creates as well.
0: Um, well, if if you find yourself doing more broadcasting around the community sector, then there's always a spot for you on the megahertz for the community <laughs> 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 carpet.
2: That's
1: cheating. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in, Katie. And uh, Katie Brennan's a Bulldogs player, she also plays with the Darabin Falcons, and you can catch the, the um, current um, women's um, Victorian women's uh, Football League playing in um, on an oval near you and um, you'll be playing where
2: this coming weekend. I believe we're at aH cap reserve just down on the Mary Creek so that's our home ground um, 2 p.m Sunday I think.
1: And um, if you don't catch them there, then you need to wait until next (laughs) February, March for the um, for the uh, women's football league to kick off in earnest. And thanks so much for coming in today.
2: Thank you for having me. Thanks.
1: Last week, Opposition Leader Bill Shorten reintroduced the important issue of a treaty with First Nations as as a a post recognition process, and it's something that's been called for for a very long time, and was even promised by Bob Hawke back in the 1980s. And there's a lot going on in this space at the local level. And uh, Mark McMillan, who's Associate Professor of Melbourne Law School, has um, been involved um, with many things. He's helping devise a treaty and self-determination framework, and he's on the board of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, and he's a Wiradjuri man, and he's also part of a very fascinating event, which we'll get to in just a moment, which is um, creating a gathering for Wiradjuri people um, that live in Melbourne, uh, a gathering on Wurundjeri and Barnaurong country, and um, the... The kind of protocols involved with doing that, and it's really great, Mark, to get you in. It's a very far-reaching conversation we're about to have. I think. Thank
3: you so much. It's good to be here.
1: And um, I suppose before we talk about the gathering that you're involved with, um, what was your response to the to treaty being brought up in a, an election campaign?
3: Appropriate. Uh, I always get a little bit uh, dejected in some ways when it's talked about as if it's new. So when the new iteration of white politicians talk about it somehow, oh, you know, this is the first, it's like blackfellas have been saying this stuff since contact and what is a treaty and how it can be known. So I think it, it provides a really useful um, moment in the campaign because we've got bipartisan support for... Uh, constitutional recognition and not all blackfellas agree with that nor want it and I think there's an issue there at law as well as connecting recognition to treaty there's a logic in if you're going to recognize well how can that recognition have a more useful and certainly a legal footing so a treaty becomes part of the logic of recognition rather than its opposition to recognition and like I said blackfellas some blackfellas are me included um, are not happy with what uh, recognition debates are at the moment. But treaty allows a real level of sophistication about, well, what will recognition mean for blackfellas? Rather than say we demand treaty, which we've always demanded, linking those two, the Constitution is about how legal authority can be understood. And it's about relationships. And I think a treaty becomes a really useful way of explaining a relationship.
0: And it's kind of being spoken about, at least in, in the mainstream media, Uh, more and more. I mean, people like Stan Grant, who's a prominent miragery Mm -hmm. man, has um, has talked about the importance of negotiating a a treaty and and Shorten, as as we just mentioned, uh, spoke a little bit about it on Q&A last week. The Coalition's response was to call that dangerous. So it kind of seems like um, there's both the profile of treaty seems to be sort of back on the agenda, but then there's this resistance from the Coalition. What's your kind of take on that?
3: My take on what the Coalition has done and certainly uh, Prime Minister Turnbull's response was it is either co- it imperils constitutional recognition when, in fact, it doesn't. And if 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 the coalition is only about giving a minuscule recognition in the constitution as some so the sum total of the relationship between blackfellas and uh, whitefellas, then he sold all of us short. And if that's the high water mark constitutional recognition, I think again he's uh, he's downplaying the importance to how the relationship can be understood by blackfellas.
1: Yeah, rather than um, muddying the waters, Mm. um, it's... Clear, clearing, Make, it actually yeah. there is a
3: level of clarity that yeah, can yeah. be around it.
1: Very interesting, and we—I mean—we had um, one of your Melbourne Uni colleagues, uh, Marcia Langton, on, on this program talking about a collection of essays uh, written about how we can approach treaty and, mm-hmm. and, and um, constitutional recognition and, and the like. And there's a whole lot of really sophisticated ideas in there. Um, uh, that I think are, are worth exploring, but I wonder you've been working on it on a framework yourself, and I wonder what your your framework might look like.
3: Well, I think what Marcia and others are talking about is how a relationship can be known, and there's got to be the whole breadth of uh, how people can understand that relationship and what that might look like i'm kind of the other way which is where is the meeting point what is the where is what's the legal environment of which sovereignties can be mutually recognized affirmed and then that's the platform for working forward rather than everybody will have a particular view and and marcia and and others Lee Godden and Morantine from the Melbourne Law School have done a huge treaty series and land use agreements or agreement-making historically as well as now under the Native Title Act, there's a lot of agreement-making and treaties are no different. Treaties are agreements. But there's a consciousness about they're at a sovereign level and government-to-government. Governments enter treaties every day. Every time the government enters into a negotiation even between the states and the Commonwealth, the states amongst themselves, their treaties. It and they is, take
1: a long time often, don't they?
3: They do, but we've been working at this stuff for, you know, 200 and something years. And so blackfellas already have a notion, I think, of how our sovereignties can be understood. I think the work needs to be done is how can other sovereigns accept that their sovereignty is actually now in a post-1992 environment, one where there is a legal relationship with Aboriginal people and the way that... uh, So when we talk about native title and the Mabo decision, Mabo was never only about a property right that gets put against everybody else. It was the consciousness of authority itself. How was Australia legally acquired of which their sovereignties were then applied? Now, Mabo... Said, uh, the decision in Mabo also said now that authority cannot be understood without a particular relationship with First Peoples. Previous law and customs session was never put on the table. So there were three modes of acquisition and of which. Terranelius was one, Mabo said that was the wrong one and the other two lawful modes of acquisition were session and, and conquest and those two modes didn't occur either. So we have these, what we have is an opportunity to understand a lawful relationship rather than going oh you know we've done the wrong thing or we're sort of guilt ridden. It is, it provides a useful moment to say how do we see a future looking Australia with law, legal re- relationships intact that doesn't destabilise either? And it, but really affirms but uh, I, what has always been.
0: And I'd, I'd like to think that we're capable of having a, a discussion that's that sophisticated, that we can understand that this is... A, it's a complex area, but it goes to the question of, of you know, the,
3: this country's history. Uh, and that's why Turnbull's uh, response were, was really a big letdown, because he's the one who, when he toppled when he toppled Tony Abbott as Prime Minister, one of the first things he said was he affirmed the intelligence of the electorate. Um, And you're right, absolutely right. We are well past the point of capacity and capability to have those nuanced, sophisticated relationships. You as non-Indigenous people... I reckon in my lifetime, I see non-Aboriginal people say i can't imagine australia without a relationship to aboriginal cultures and knowledges and peoples and that's true we see that at the opening of the olympics and wherever australia is trotted out how do we represent ourselves blackfellas are part of that that national identity but when you think of the constitutional arrangements we're still stuck in the the late 19th century where Aboriginal people were to die out and so there was policies and laws that allowed that to occur but a hundred years on we're still grappling with a document that still doesn't allow the level of sophistication that you guys know as a matter of fact um, to have a particular way of being expressed
1: and Mark you are on the board of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples and I I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how that uh, organisation works with government
3: it doesn't unfortunately um the National Congress uh, was set up after the demise of ATSIC and there was a fu- our future in our hands, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people got together and said, what kind of organisation, represent- the representative structure do we need? So we'd had legislative structures before and the problem with legislation is politicians can obviously... ..or the legislature can repeal them so they can stop existing. And so this was... Was set up as a company by guarantee, and what we did then was have membership, and so set up in chambers. But what we did in Congress is say that gender equality is a foundation of how we're to know the organisation, and it's um, it one of its capacities is to make gender equality very understood in everything we do. So every there is a male and female co-chair and a male and female um, board. Uh, for each chamber directors. I'm the male Chamber 3 member of the board, so I represent Chamber 3. But the relationship to government was, it came up in 2010, the Labor government under uh, Rudd, Gillard Rudd, uh, no it was Gillard then Rudd, uh, funded to the tune of $25 That wasn't what the plan was. We said that it had to be sustainable funding, not as a Contribution, but as a responsibility of government to, for not just past injustices. How do you actually know how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are representing? And there's a responsibility to make sure that that's standard. Uh, Then when. Tony Abbott was elected, the first thing they did was cut $15 million in funding. And they, Minister Scullion, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, has recently announced that he will personally not fund Congress. I think there's a legal issue with the way he's prefaced that, which is there was a live funding application and he's gone public before he's made a decision. I think we should investigate whether that breaches our administrative law. But so Congress is imperiled. Um, so what this other what this government has done is set up an advisory committee rather than listen to a representative structure, and this, this this issue of representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and when government takes its advice is now a divisive issue again because this government ideologically is opposed to Indigenous representation and representative structures. It is only dealing with who would appoint and legitimises as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And I think that's really dangerous. So where we're at at the moment is quite precarious. We actually, uh, if we do not secure more funding, uh, the, the representative structure will cease in December. Um, Labor has part of its national policy framework... Uh, said it will reinstate 15 million dollars in funding
1: you wear many hats mark mcmillan he's um, (laughs) with melbourne law school and a wiradjuri man living in melbourne and um this comes to the the kind of um real focus of our our conversation this morning is a gathering that you an event you're setting up um coming up very soon um based at the melbourne museum and uh it's called wiradjuri off country better tell us what that's about
3: well what it is is How do we? There are a lot of Wiradjuri people living off country and particularly in big cities. And what we are trying to to work out is how do we find each other and how do we say that we think our identity must be uh, can be used collectively? So we affirm each other by being Wiradjuri with each other, even though we're not on country. So it is about attaching ourselves to. Our culture and how we can know the world away from our connections. And it's part of the Indigenous nation building suite of uh, how can Indigenous collectives, our own cultural authorities and polities, have a way of being? And we're strengthening how we can be collective with each other. And we also have to do that by acknowledging we're not on our country.
0: And I was going to ask, what sort of protocols are there around that in, in organising a gathering for
3: Wurundjeri people
0: off-country?
3: Well, first and foremost, we had to seek the permission of Wurundjeri and Bunurong, and that was really... There were a couple of missteps I'd made in that because there is the assumption that Melbourne CBD uh, is only Wurundjeri country even if it is not my issue to deal with, but it's a contested space with Bunerong and Wurundjeri over to where their boundaries are. And instead of going, I'm going to buy into it, it's just like we had a, a Wiradjuri elder, Arnie Lorraine Tai, come down from country. So she lives in Wagga Wagga. She's one of our master weavers. And she came and asked the... Wurundjeri elders to see if we can have the event and then it was made aware that we needed to ask Bunerong, so Aunty Carolyn Briggs was contacted by Aunty Lorraine and so these are really important uh, I think protocols that what we've learnt about going through this journey was a lot of people talk about cultural protocols very few have followed them through so it's been interesting to say we're committed and so are the people, but it 's finding out who you to to ask how do you ask? but the asking has been done, and the permissions have been granted so I think that that's really important, but not playing the politics we don 't buy into who is legitimate everybody's legitimate we 're just here asking if we can culturally hang out together on somebody else 's country
1: mm. and um, so it sounds like you're establishing these, um, you know, finding your way through to make, make this event on the, the 26th of June happen. Has the reciprocal happened? Have, is there off-country gatherings on, on Wiradjuri country in New South Wales?
3: No, no, this is the first wherever, I mean, wherever it's been. So in the Indigenous nation building framework, uh, the Australian examples are just starting to emerge. And what one of the struggles of... Native nations First Nations and certainly ours is how does a polity and when it's actually strengthening and building institutions deal with the obvious which is most people don't live on country uh, or on reservation or whatever what you want to call it in North America and what are the examples of how do you practice being that cultural group even though you're not off not on country it hasn't it's not occurring anywhere else that we are Formally, And that's perfectly OK. And I think we've always got to put the caveat on blackfellas have always been nation building and we're always finding ways to hang out with each other. This is in a particular way and in a particular form that seeks to not only see how do we strengthen ourselves and our resilience with where we are collectively, but then how do we use that collective understanding and being to re-engage with our own governing institutions on country.
0: And this event's coming up uh, this Sunday, June the 26th, at the Treetops at Melbourne
3: Museum, and it's open to anyone who's Wiradjuri? It is, and their registrations are at www.wiradjurioffcountry.com.au. We encourage people to register, even if they're not coming, uh, just so we can find out... Where people are, how many... We know that there's a big Yorta Yorta gathering uh, in Shepparton. A lot of Yorta Yorta are also Wiradjuri because of the connections across the river and Kumara Mission and Warangesda Missions, both on Yorta Yorta and Wiradjuri country. We had a lot of movement. So we do know that a lot of people hold dual Indigenous citizenship and that's pretty exciting and how do we allow people to reignite all of their... Indigenous cultures and their citizenship, um, essentially.
1: So I won't be there because I'm not Wiradjuris, but I'd love to know what your plans are for Mm -hmm. the... event
3: well uh, first and foremost we don't want to put too many restrictions it's not going to be a structured it's going to be semi-structured so Arnie Lorraine is coming down and hopefully we're going to have uh, weaving circles so how do we talk about what it means to be Wiradjuri whilst we're doing cultural practice we're going to have a big map of where people can say they're from and how they identify and all of that sort of stuff uh, we're also going to have a language speaker so I uh, on country and off country especially in sydney and a lot of wiradjuri people in melbourne are flying up to country to learn language and so we're going to have some language teachers come down and say where might be we might be able to do this in melbourne if not at all um so we're trying to just promote the opportunity without putting pressure on people just to gather we don't know what it means to be Wiradjuri collectively in Melbourne because it hasn't been done. Um, but it, we, So we want to leave it a bit freeform. So this might
1: be the first... Of many. You just don't we know We hope
3: yet. so. Well, yeah. um, RMIT is supporting it and RMIT is running a studio for non-Indigenous students about how to be in dialogue with Indigenous Nations in the design school and hopefully one of the other events might be to work out, do an exhibition of those works of non-Indigenous students about how they're in dialogue with Indigenous Nations and use that as an event and an opportunity for people to get together.
1: I love the way you talk about so many sophisticated ideas, Mark, and um, you've made it really kind of clear to me i suppose where 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 we're at and where you're coming from and um, all the best for the event thank and um so and let's hope that we continue a national dialogue that is constructive and um not dumbed down that's for sure uh, mark mcmillan he's associate professor at melbourne law school and uh um one of the people behind the wiradjuri off country event and you can find out more info at wiradjurioffcountry.com.au catch you, Thought you might know
3: him. thank <laughs> you so much for having me
1: And uh, Wikipedia has shown that crowdsourcing information can become a valuable and incredibly reliable way of building rich and interconnected information platforms, but it's certainly not the only platform out there for collating histories, particularly local histories. And a new project's been trialled in Melbourne, in the Port Melbourne area to be exact, to enable people to share their local history and memories of life called Past Port Melbourne get it it's a new mobile application that allows you to explore video photos and even take walking tours and it's the initiative of associate professor hannah uh, Louie at melbourne university and uh, our regular urban planning and historian dr dave nichols has brought her in this morning to talk about this project and there's a a symposium also coming up very soon it's great to have you both in and um thanks i I don't know if the wikipedia comparison is a good one there, Dave, but it's certainly good to see um, applications to allow um, local people to to share their kind of histories and memories and video of a place.
4: Totally, I think so. I think that um, local people always have... uh you know, particular narratives, particular stories about the places where they lived, uh, if they grew up there, especially. Uh, we've we talked to quite a few people in the Port Melbourne area for this project who have some, you know, just some great stories about things that wouldn't necessarily be a part of the the conventional um, narrative. It's it's been really really interesting on that front.
1: Like what, like what, sort like of what? Stories?
4: You know what I I think um, one thing that sticks in my mind is the um, the location of a um, a coin-in-the-slot petrol bowser that was, like, one of the early automatic petrol places uh, in Melbourne, if not the first and maybe the only. I don't know. It's one of those things where you go, I never knew that such a thing existed. <laughs> but uh, one of our informants had, you know, memories of, I'm guessing, the early 60s, maybe the mid-60s, of, of using that uh, technology. Uh, and it was, I guess, you know, probably incredibly... Uh, Almost, almost romantic, but you know, fascinating uh, portent of the future that you could put some coins in the slot, get your petrol. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to wait for the man to come out and put. Uh and of course, you know, all that associated stuff of the, the car being f- uh, freedom and, uh, you know, the, the adventure of being able to drive. But just that, that little element sticks in my mind.
1: So um, why Port Melbourne, Hannah? Is there something about that part of Melbourne that, that lends itself to being a, a good place to trial this kind of technology?
5: yeah we were i think we were interested in Port Melbourne because exactly of this kind of uh, rich local history and um it 's an area that i guess has didn't have a lot of change for a long time and then uh, now recently is sort of undergoing rapid kind of change and gentrification and so we're kind of interested in catching it at that cusp moment if you like Um, but it has a really rich history and it has a contested history as we found or you know talking to locals and talking to the local history society that there's a different version of history for every single story, every single house, you know, and and we're quite interested in that um, rather than closing down dialogues about history, which I think a lot of um, apps and uh, walking tours and things, they give you a very pithy sort of um, information-based, you know, this was built here, this date, and we're kind of interested in, in sidestepping some of that and drawing out some of those contested Sort of stories and memories.
0: And so how does the app work? I mean, obviously with Wikipedia, anyone can upload a, a page or, yep. or edit a page, um, you know, at their will, really. Does the app work in a similar way where people can uh, upload information themselves or do they kind of come to you or come to a, to a body who filters that and, and eventually puts it in the app?
5: Yeah, that's a great question because <laughs> we've debated that a lot in this project about mm-hmm because um, the idea was uh, from the outset that people would contribute um, and so in building this app that's that's actually been the hardest thing in a ways to, to work out how to, how to facilitate that easily so people can upload text, videos, images and so on um, and they can curate a tour but we have uh, decided to have some sense of moderation through the project at the beginning at least just to see sort of how things play out because we've seeded the app with loads of content that we've been gathering over the last year um but hopefully that will grow a lot but i guess if it grows to the point where you can't use it because there's too much kind of just competing stuff uh we feel this there needs to be some level of curation but yeah dave we, we've debated this quite yes, a bit <laughs>
4: exactly there's a, there's a big uh, controversy in port melbourne about um a particular fish and chip shop that made apparently the best potato cakes in the world <laughs> and um there is a lot of uh, upset about this and uh, whether they were the best in the world and how we can now find that out uh, how can we, we can prove that today because they're no longer being made uh you know That's what was the recipe? It's Very what, challenging. What is it?
1: What's what's the process for verifying that information? Well, exactly.
4: That's the that's the question. <laughs> that's what we've been debating for a long time. Now.
0: <laughs> but there is, I guess, that that inevitable question around quality control and ensuring yeah. that the, the stories and, and histories that are included yeah. are, are accurate as well. Yeah,
5: absolutely. And you know, and all the all the issues around the internet anyway. That of course things have to be accurate. Also, they have to to not offend anyone and and so on. So it's going to be a balance, and that's what's going to be interesting in in. Um, I think launching the app now to see see how people use it. I was up in
1: um, Merlinston north of Melbourne over the weekend and I got into a great conversation with the woman who runs the op shop there Mm. and has all these incredible aerial photographs of that area from the from the 60s and all these stories around the community hall and things like this and I wonder uh, when you're going to Port Melbourne and speaking to people I imagine you're targeting those kinds of people and and the resources they have but how do you work with them to get it into the digital format?
4: Well it's interesting there there are some great uh, Facebook groups that I've done a lot of uh, work on in the last year 18 months there's one called Born and Bred Port Melbourne which is just a fascinating resource those people are the people that contribute to that group often they don't live there anymore often they're in their I'm guessing 60s maybe older Uh, and they're they're very um, versatile when it comes to Uh, scanning and sharing photographs and you know uh, they have a good understanding of the necessity for putting them in a particular place and time Um, it's not um, which I know is not entirely what you're suggesting but it's not just people throwing um, bits and pieces of you know historical material you know at the wall and seeing what sticks I mean they they um, perhaps because perhaps it's something about Port Melbourne in particular and the the understanding of a long history you know it's pretty much one of the oldest uh parts of melbourne and it's uh it has a has a very long and very you know consistent um in large part working class history that uh people have an understanding of the value of of that and and the necessity to make it um you know give give context and understanding of it
1: maybe tell us a little bit about port melbourne because it is a port for instance so you've got that interaction with a a local community but also that interaction with the outside world in a very direct way
4: yeah, Port Melbourne is um yeah, of course, it is a port. Um there was um and Melbourne's, you know, whole raison d'etre is is to be the kind of, you know, a siphon of goods from the hinterland to the outside world. So um there's a there was a lot of questions about, you know, where do we put the port? Uh is the port going to be somewhere up the Yarra or is it gonna be um at the um you know, Hobson's Bay at those where where it is. Um there was um it was a contested area for a long time throughout most of the 19th century. Not much was built in a large part of that area, particularly the Fisherman's Bend area, because they never quite knew what to do with it. So it was left as a wasteland for a long time, just empty land for a long time uh, until the beginning of the last century. And uh, that's when, uh, when we started to see some housing and some industry being put there. So it was, um, it's quite an unusual history for that, area and of course some of port melbourne is is really old it's you know mid uh, 19th century uh so there was some there was development there there's been a lot of change to the landscape there was a big lagoon which was yeah. uh, drained and um uh you know sort of still contributes in a way to the to the landscape and the and the built environment by its you know by its absence if that makes sense uh so there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of aspects to the, the development of that area that mirrors in a way the development of Melbourne as well. Uh, notoriously, um, you know almost anybody who migrated to Melbourne until about you know I guess the late 1960s came through Port Melbourne. It was their first site of uh, Melbourne and Victoria in most cases. So, um, so it has that value in Melbourne's history as well in the history of migration and, and all of that. Uh, and there's 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 many other elements to it that uh, that give it um, you know I think it has probably for a lot of people as people have a particular fondness for the area as well you know in in Melbourne generally whether it's you know the the beach or or other other aspects of it but it's um, it's certainly uh, really extraordinary and and. Uh, varied area of uh, of the city.
1: Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, as, as you mentioned earlier, it is about to change. We've got the, the announcement of a, you know, a massive new suburb right on the, the, the border of Port Five Melbourne. new suburbs, if you don't oh, mind. Oh, is it five? <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, I'm... I'm, I'm them. Um, so is there a sense of um, urgency, really, to get this history out there? Hannah, are you getting a sense that it is the time?
5: Yeah, look, I, I think so. And we've worked quite closely with um, the Emerald Hill Heritage Centre and also the Port Melbourne Historical Society has been our sort of first way of gathering some of this local history um, And I think there is that that feeling, uh, as has happened with Beacon Cove, that, you know, things are about to change and there's some good things inherent in that and then there's a lot of sense that that there's vestiges of of industry, of the past that are going to go. So, yeah, we're interested in how something like a a digital web app can be a way of I think as you said in the introduction Kalia, gathering together resources that might form the kind of stuff of heritage and history in the future Um, and Facebook sites are great for the now, but they're not so great at how are you going to gather this information mm-hmm. later? Um, it's often, you know, for for a kind of closed community. It's it's yeah, it's ephemeral in some ways. So that sort of be our next challenge in a way. Is and then what do we do with this stuff? Because this can form the kind of um, community heritage of. of of the future.
0: We are speaking with uh, Dr Dave Nichols, and Associate Professor Hannah Louis all about a new uh, local history app called Passport which uh, documents the history of Port Melbourne Um, and it seems like it's a huge undertaking to kind of bring all this information together and and, um, include it in a a platform but are there any plans to expand it to other communities? Because I imagine a lot of local history societies and people from all across the nation really would, um, would love that sort of outlet.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean there's other there is already other kind of tools out there for making tours and things like that but we deliberately did this so that it's it's a sort of google map based thing and we've kind of drawn a bit of a sort of pink boundary around loosely around the kind of um port melbourne area you chose the color <laughs> oh. yeah, my favorite <laughs> <laughs> no, and, the <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you know if you if you zoom out there's no reason why we can't move it and colonize other other parts so yeah i'm I'm really keen that this could have application elsewhere.
1: And you are um, reaching out, not just online, but you're you're running a symposium. Maybe um, tell us a little bit about what's happening in the middle of July.
5: Yep. Um, Yeah, so this is in association with the broader project that's um, in making the app, um, which is called Citizen Heritage, uh, which is run through University of Melbourne and with partners at Deakin. And um, we're running a symposium on the 14th and 15th of July called Digital Glam. And glam meaning galleries, libraries, I always get this wrong, archives, museums, the glam sector. It's a great title. Yeah, so and how that how they are using particularly um, innovative new media, um, particularly mobile uh, technology to sort of, uh, again, connect with communities outside of their institutions. So the, it's a day symposium and um, we'd love people to come uh, on the Friday and then on the Thursday night we have a keynote uh, free lecture that will be held at the State Library of Victoria. Um, Anthony Robbins is the Director of Communications at the Museum of London and he's coming out to talk about what they do and they were real pioneers in uh this kind of thing they had a really um fantastic app very early called street museum
1: Fantastic. Well, if you want to find out more, um, the website is past, as in the past, pastport.com.au and you can get the app and you can get in touch with the, the makers of it if you've got some history that you want to contribute and um, all the best with it. It sounds like a great initiative and um, sounds like we're going to be talking to you again maybe in the future about how it's, how it's going and how it's expanding and um, thanks for coming in. Thanks. thanks. Uh, Associate Professor Hannah Louie and um, Dr Dave Nichols and he's a regular on this show and we'll catch you again in the month, Dave.